So I'm going to talk then for about 35 minutes this evening, so not too long. Um, and then I'm going to uh, lead us in a short um, modified version of the Metta Bhavana. Okay. So my talk for this evening is about self-compassion. So compassion and wisdom are two fundamental uh, Buddhist qualities that regardless of tradition, Buddhists are trying to cultivate and express in their practice. So today I'm going to um, talk about an aspect of compassion which perhaps doesn't get much uh, attention, which is self-compassion. So like mindfulness, compassion and self-compassion have increasingly uh, become topics of secular interest in recent years. Um, and also various Chiratna teachers and centres draw on this psychological research by some of the leading figures in the field, such as Paul Gilbert, Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer. In fact, some of their books are probably downstairs in our bookshop. And yet, despite the importance and value of this research and its explicit sympathy with Buddhism, these largely psychological accounts, viewed as such, have limitations for Dharma practitioners since they end at the point that the Dharmic potential of the practice of compassion and self-compassion begins, namely as a path to transcendental insight. And to follow that path means to follow the teachings that the Buddha and Sangharachara in turn in his interpretation of the Dharma have given us. So I've chosen this topic to speak about tonight for several reasons. The first is that being able to cultivate self-compassion is very important since it's the foundation for expressing compassion towards other beings. How can we express compassion towards others if we're not compassionate towards ourselves? Are we a special, particularly unworthy case? No. We're also beings on the planet worthy of metta and compassion, which is why metta and karana bhavana meditation practices start with ourselves. But I've noticed that self-metta, like self-compassion, sorry, I've noticed that like self-metta, Self-compassion is an area that a lot of people, myself included, struggle with in their practice. So I've been wondering why that is. I'm not going to be able to answer that question definitively this evening, so I'm just offering you some thoughts in that direction. Secondly, and more personally, I see exploration of this topic as part of my practice in relation to the name that I was given last September at ordination. In short, name as practice. When someone is ordained, as they have been today in Spain, it's sometimes envisaged as a flow of qualities coming into the order, qualities that can enrich the order. The name that I was given, Dharma Karunya, means she whose compassion is from the Dharma. It contains familiar words, such as Dharma, which we call the teaching of the Buddha. And of course, Dharma also means the nature of reality. Though in reality... Um, sorry, kar uh, karana means compassion as a variant of, of, of karunya, sorry, I'll start again. Karunya means compassion as a variant of karana. Though in reality, order names really flow as a whole, so that the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So I have a sense that my name might refer to the compassion which flows through reality and affirms life. And it's obviously, for me, a practice across many lifetimes to begin to live up to and to live from that name. 
So this evening, then, I'm going to start by speaking about what compassion is and how it relates to self-compassion. Then I'll say a little about what obstacles we might experience in relation to the cultivation of self-compassion. And lastly, why self-compassion is so beneficial and how we can develop our practice in this area. So in so doing, I'm going to draw on various sources. Um, firstly, of course, on Bante's teaching, but also on material from compassion-based therapies that I mentioned earlier, as well as from psychoanalysis, to tease out what self-compassion is, why it can be difficult for us, and how we can cultivate it. And then, as I've said, to finish this first part of the evening, I'm going to lead us in a short adapted version of the Metta Bhavana, since that's a practice familiar to all of us in cultivating positive emotion, and specifically in relation to ourselves and to other beings. So the word compassion means to suffer with or to love with, and is related etymologically to the Greek word pathos or suffering. And by extension, the noun patient, or one who suffers. So the word compassion has a sense of experiencing a mutual resonance uh, with other people's suffering. It's a word suggesting connection, a kindly movement towards another person with the motivation to help them. Compassion is what happens when our metta, our loving-kindness, meets suffering. Self-compassion in this context might seem a contradiction if, according to the Dharmic view, we see a fixed self as something that doesn't exist. How can we feel compassion towards something, someone, that doesn't exist? And we might assume that compassion is something that only involves other people. But as I'm going to explore, the dharmic cultivation of compassion involves moving beyond fixed views of self, other and circumstance. A poem by Sangharachita, The Unseen Flower, which you may or may not know, expresses some key elements of compassion. So I'm just going to read it. Compassion is far more than emotion. It's something that springs up in the emptiness which is when you yourself are not there, so that you do not know anything about it. Nobody, in fact, knows anything about it. If they knew it, it would not be compassion. But they can only smell the scent of the unseen flower that blooms in the heart of the void. So compassion here emerges when we're not preoccupied with ourselves, when we drop our habitual concerns for a while and notice the situation of other people as suffering beings on the planet, just like us. So it's not primarily concerned with knowledge of others, but more about an insight into others' situation and a connection with others. In that sense, there's an altered temporality to compassion in that it is slow, it contemplates, it resonates, because we need time to see, to really see, and to take others in, even if the expression of compassion might be swift when 
or if it comes. So compassion is like an invisible current that's always there, flowing through reality. But it can sometimes be cut short by self-preserving emotions. As the poem says, compassion is the unseen flower which blooms from the heart of the flow of life's conditions and whose perfume enhances our lives. It enhances life as it is, not how we want life to be. That noticing of others implies awareness of, or more specifically mindfulness of others, and a recognition of our common humanity. A moment when we transcend ourselves and our immediate hardwired fight or flight reactions to others, rooted in the ancient animal part of our brain that prioritises survival. The psychologist Paul Gilbert, whose work on the compassionate mind is now very well known, has explored extensively this dialectical relationship, this to and fro between our animal primitive brain, which is preoccupied with survival and safety, and our new brain and the three emotion regulation systems which they use. The threat and self-protection system, the incentive and resource-seeking system, and the soothing and contentment system. In this context, the tendency not to cultivate compassion for ourselves and others is behaviour associated with this primitive brain, which is wired for safety, survival and competition. The same animal brain that acts very fast and tells us to run away from danger. The primitive brain gives us helpful, rapid messages that keep us and others safe, but since the dinosaurs left, they're proving to be a very limited, immediate application. Adapted to contemporary society, they can produce sophisticated forms of destructive and delusionary behaviour, which can result in a range of negative consequences, from compulsive anxiety, alienation and oppression, to annihilation. As Gilbert argues in detail, contemporary society tends to overstimulate our threat system and our incentive system so that we tend to want more and think we need to do more to achieve some contentment. We can get very restless if we're not wanting something or doing something to get it. Added to this is the model of self which, with which we operate in advanced capitalist societies, which tends to be one of lack, which propels us ever more to fill that void. But as we learn, this doesn't deliver contentment and doesn't help us cultivate compassion for ourselves or for others. As Gilbert argues in his psychological analyses, this can only be achieved by cultivating the soothing and contentment system, which promotes connectedness with others and helps us work with our destructive desires, threat-related emotions, and the ups and downs of life which we can't control. From a Buddhist perspective, we live in both a complex and a very simple world. It's complex because it's made up of perpetually evolving conditions in which we get caught up, and often things seem to happen very fast. And then we have little control over many of those conditions, which means that we frequently experience the suffering of things not going the way we want as we try to navigate our way through these conditions. 
Sometimes the difficulties are small. Sometimes they're seemingly huge. Yet our world is also very simple. We're born and we'll die amid these complex conditions. And we simply need to find a way to live and love ourselves and other beings. So we can realise that it's often our reactions to suffering that make suffering harder than it is. In Buddhism, this is often referred to as the second arrow, in the sense that the first arrow is the event which causes unavoidable suffering, and the second arrow is our interpretation and fixation on the suffering, that we don't allow it to pass and allow it to be impermanent as it is. In the context of our response to suffering as loss, in his 1917 essay, Freud describes a useful distinction between mourning and melancholia. Put very simply, mourning entails a conscious process of grieving for the lost love object and letting it go, whereas melancholia entails an unconscious inability to let go and instead incorporates the loss into the structure of the ego. Our identity can then become built on and even shorn up by introjected suffering. A belief that can prevent us from letting suffering pass is that our happiness resides in external circumstances and other people rather than in our inner response. So we can spend an awful lot of time, an awful lot of effort trying to get externals right the right job, the right partner, and even the best circumstances for our Dharma practice, and blaming them when those conditions don't deliver and repeatedly escape us. We can resist more strongly, and the suffering deepens. We might feel angry, our sense of entitlement to happiness frustrated. Then, perhaps after a while, we go with it. We put our slippers on rather than try and carpet the whole world. We might begin to see that pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. So perhaps a measure of a contented and even successful life is not the possessions or the people that we may think we've acquired in our lives, but rather the degree to which we've met the conditions of our lives with mindfulness and kindness. How do we respond to the inevitable suffering of others and to our own inevitable suffering? How do we relate to others and to ourselves in times of ease and seeming success? These are the worldly winds that either blow us about or blow through us and leave us standing secure. And I think the answer to these questions can be an indicator of the ease or difficulty that we find in practicing self-compassion. So to explore the notion of self-compassion now, it might seem straightforward. It's compassion turned towards ourselves. It's to be mindful of ourselves and hold that awareness with kindness towards the frail human being that we are in the face of the vastness of the universe and the complexity of its conditions. It's related to having a sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Kindliness towards ourselves when we suffer, when we get it wrong, and are caught up in those complex conditions when we can't find a way forward. 
to deeply realise that we're human beings in a world that does and will produce difficulties that we will navigate somehow and just like everyone else. And yet self-compassion can seem challenging for many reasons. And I think one reason is that it takes us into the heart of our relationship with ourselves, which sometimes might not be entirely comfortable if we're willing to turn towards ourselves and really look. It takes us into the texture of our relationship with ourselves to see how we really relate to ourselves. And this might be with a variety of emotions, a variety of responses, with, with fascination, with frustration, with pity, criticism, blame, pride, neglect, delight, or more often a mixture of many things. In Buddhism, we sometimes talk about near enemies of qualities in the sense that they can easily be mistaken for the quality itself. So some near enemies of self-compassion would probably be self-pity, self-preoccupation, self-blame, and self-indulgence, whereas a far enemy, easier to work out, would be self-aversion or self-hatred. But I think self-compassion can be light. We hold ourselves with respect, appreciation, and kindliness, yet we're not precious about it. It's a letting go of self-preoccupation and the drama of being a self in the world. It just meets suffering wherever it is. Conversely, self-pity and other maybe of the near enemies can feel heavy and debilitating. They lock us in. They fix us as being overwhelmed by circumstance, isolated and unable to move on. So we can begin to become aware of the emotional obstacles to self-compassion. And I've mentioned quite a few of these. And I think we can usually spot these uh, obstacles by noticing how we talk to ourselves. Our papancha or mental proliferation. What's running around our head at any given time. And a useful question to ask ourselves here might be, would we talk to others in the same way in which we talk to ourselves. I know I wouldn't, um, at least sometimes. So do we try hard to practice skillful speech to others and practice unskillful speech to ourselves? In noticing this kindly, we can remember that the voices that talk to us are often not our own, but voices from the past, so familiar that they've become deeply internalised and embedded in our inner landscape. So an interesting question beyond the remit of this talk this evening would be to ask what extent our voices are our own, or are they a residue of past conditions which we're trying to make sense of and to find a voice in. In my own case, an inner voice of self-criticism that I experience, but fortunately much less than before I began practising the Dharma, so it does work, uh, can be an echo of my mother's, which I heard as a child. And like any other child, I internalised that voice so that I learned how to be my best self-critic. Now, that's very useful sometimes, because 
it means that I can be good at self-reflection and receptive to others' suggestions. But at other times, I've experienced that self-criticism as harsh and debilitating. And yet, as I've come to know my mother more in her late age, I realised that she too uh, was subject to harsh criticism and internalised it and then projected it onto others, including me, since we project onto others that which we cannot bear. And so it continues without the awareness that we can do something differently next time. As the Zen story goes, we see a boat heading straight towards us in the mist, and we shout out to blame the negligent navigator. And then we see that the boat has been empty all along. There is no easy cause to blame. We're all caught up in conditions, and the only wise response is compassion. And I suspect that this relationship to self-compassion can play out rather differently according to, <clears throat> according to gender. Since patriarchal gender conditioning encourages women or can encourage women to be compassionate towards others and to prioritise the well-being of partners, children and anyone else who might need, need taking care of without cultivating compassion towards themselves. Meanwhile, I wonder, but of course I can't know, if patriarchal conditioning might cause men in turn to engage with self-compassion differently. Um, I, I wonder if guys see self-compassion as a bit unmanly, <laughs> but uh, that's beyond my remit, and of course it's beyond my experience. But maybe both women and men, however they interpret and are interpreted by their genders, can find self-compassion uncomfortable at a deeper level sometimes. So this looking into our relationship to self-compassion can take us into an exploration of our relationship to our own frustration. And I've become interested in frustration recently, initially stimulated by reading um, Missing Out in Praise of the Unlived Life by the contemporary psychoanalyst Adam Phillips. And then I've been reflecting upon it in relation to Dharma practice. So Phillips's book is concerned with the different ways in which we can be haunted by the lives we fantasised about, but didn't somehow manage to live. And I think that Phillips's essay called On Frustration can help us think about self-compassion. According to classical psychoanalysis, um, identity is premised on psychosexual lack, so that our lives are a perpetual quest to recover the lost love object, a time of fantasised plenitude when all our child's needs were seemingly met. It's, all, it's why we often fall in love with people who seem to be like our mothers or fathers, or even sometimes both. As another psychoanalyst, Christopher Bolas, puts it, we regress in order to survive. Now for Freud, as discussed by Phillips, the finding of an object is always a refinding of an object, since we never had that object in the first place, but rather fantasised it. We try to recover something we never had, and instead find what we fantasised about, an elaborate, self-fulfilling prophecy, which may have little to do with the person or the situation in front of us. 
our fantasies of total satisfaction, which we project onto others, most obviously in the case of romantic love, act as a refuge from realer exchanges with realer people. And most famously, Jacques Lacan, France's most famous post-Freudian psychoanalyst, described romantic love as giving something you haven't got to someone who doesn't exist, which pithily alludes to the delusional views of ourselves and others that we can have in emotionally charged circumstances. But what Phillips seems interested in is what our unlived lives reveal to us about our frustration. And he suggests that there are at least four types of frustration. Being deprived of something that's never existed. Being deprived of something one has never had. Being deprived of something one has had. Being deprived of something one has had but can't have again. Sounds a bit grim, doesn't it, really? Um, but the threads of Philip's discussion that I want to draw out here in terms of self-compassion are first the secular model of lack that it implies and which is widespread in Western capitalist society, as already noted. And second, the fuel of having rather than being that seems to sustain it and relatedly its rootedness in fantasy. I say seems because the fantasised sustenance is illusory and instead faces us sooner or later with our own frustration. So where I'm going with this discussion is to say that coming into a more adult, mindful and soothing relationship to our own frustration is to begin to develop a compassionate relationship with ourselves and with others, to become more attuned to reality into how things are. Earlier in his discussion, Phillips wonders whether what we think of as our agency or will or our capacity to make choices is something invented, called up by the primal experience of frustration, the idea of the self as a self-cure for our first helplessness in the face of our need, like bravado in a storm. So this is the self as a melancholic, narcissistic construct, a static image in a colouring book, which we know is fantasy, but which we colour in to animate it as ballast and refuge from the frustration and dukkha we feel when we experience the complexity of reality. So we try vainly to keep things safe by fixing things and preempting things, and that includes ourselves, and other people. We want to believe in the illusion of a stable universe that we are moving through, even though our experience of conditioned co-production shows us time and again that we're caught up in a changing situation over which we have little lasting control. We know from our own and other people's experience that we get ill, that we age and that we die, that stuff happens that's beyond our control, both to our benefit and to our disadvantage. And even though we might deny or distort these facts of our existential predicament, they remain deeply true. So frustration, I think, tells us a lot about what agendas, acknowledged and unacknowledged, we may have for ourselves and others. It's what happens when we don't get it 
or don't get away with it, to borrow Phillips's terms. And frustration is one of the very human things that we feel when we meet the flow of conditioned co-production with our agendas. And of course, ultimately, we never get it or get away with it anyway. But I think it's here that Bante's discussion of the five niyamas, one of the features of his interpretation of the Dharma, is so helpful. So in case you've not come across them, they're the five orders or laws of conditionality, physical relating to matter, biological relating to living beings, psychological relating to non-volitional mental processes, karmic relating to volitional actions, and dharmic relating to the Buddha's teaching, acting in and on the world. And they're discussed in several places, but maybe more recently in Bhante's 2010 paper, Revering and Relying Upon the Dharma, if you want to explore them further. As Divan has argued, we need to be careful of our terminology here, as ever, since it can create metaphysical problems for us. And he suggests that we think of these orders or principles as five orders or grades of conditioned phenomena, all equally subject to the one principle of conditionality or natural order. As he says, there are means, and I quote, to describe the observable regularities within the arising and ceasing of conditioned phenomena, and a conventional rather than absolute distinction, the creation of human thought rather than being part of nature, end of quote. So reality as we experience it rather than as we think of it is made up of co-producing conditions, and caught up in these conditions, we have limited room for volitional agency. The five niyamas reveal to us, as Bante puts it pithily in his eponymous poem, that life is king, and that to be mindful of these conditions is also to be aware that there is so much beyond our control, including ourselves. Just as others can be a mystery to us, we're also often a mystery to ourselves. Since coming into deeper connection with the parameters of the human is not a path of knowledge but a path of insight as to what is possible beyond our wildest imaginings. There is indeed always much more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in our philosophy, as Hamlet says to Horatio. So in all of this, just as we wish to express compassion to someone who's suffering, maybe their parent has died, or they've just lost their job and don't know how they'll manage. We can also witness our own pain with kindness, acceptance and understanding. For this reason, as we practice in the bhavana meditation practices associated with the Brahmaviharas, we start with ourselves, since we can't cultivate positive emotion and well-wishing towards others if we can't empathise with ourselves. It would only be an alienated empathy without the engagement of the heart. And what we're aiming for is simpler than we think, and literally so. We're aiming to witness suffering wherever it is found, with no preoccupation with self or other, with my suffering or yours. Since from the perspective of absolute reality, there is no one to have compassion for. We just feel compassion. 
I think in practicing self-compassion, we're not coming from a place of self-criticism. We're not trying to fix ourselves. We're trying to move away from the model of the self as lack, activated by desirous attachment, this is what I want, and habit, activated by this is what I always do, towards a sense of agency as flow. We're okay, just as we are, and what we are is changing, if we allow it to. We're noticing our relationship to ourselves, and going deeper into ourselves paradoxically to let ourselves go, in relation to what the Yogacara calls the Atmakleshas, or mental afflictions in relation to the self. Self-views, self-delusion, self-conceit, and self-attachment, all ways in which we reify or fix a thing we've invented called self. As Bante writes in Living Wisely, overcoming ego is not just an idea, it's an experience, a way of life. When we're living from ego, we're contracting our being around a delusion and reacting to the world. Whereas when we're living from non-ego, and these terms are quite dualistic, of course, when we're living from non-ego, we're free, flowing and expansive, spiralling outwards and upwards. So in the face of our human predicament, we can try to cultivate compassion for ourselves and others through the many teachings available to us. Mindfulness, of course. The Metabhavana, sorry, the Bhavana meditation practices. The practice of the Brahma Viharas. Spiritual friendship. And explore the path of greatest ease rather than the path of greatest resistance. And in this way, self-compassion can slowly become a deeper and deeper wish to boost our and others' happiness and freedom from suffering. In short, if we want to suffer less, self-compassion and compassion towards others makes absolute sense. It is a path of liberation. So if we want the Dharma to change the world, the revolution towards a more compassionate world starts with us, here, now. It's a slow turning about in our consciousness to live from a wiser and kinder place. Multiplied, its effects are revolutionary, as compassion sets everything free to bask in the reality of its fleeting existential glory. So I'll finish with another poem by Bante. And this is called Invocation. And it's, um, it's of particular significance to me because it was read out during my ordination retreat. So it's, uh, it resonates quite strongly for me. Field freshening rain. White night rain lingering on in drizzles till the dawn. Pools of bright silver making, birthing streams in dry clay riverbeds. Pour down, O oh rain. All day, all night, pour down, pour down, 
O rain, pour down. World welfare and compassion, void-born compassion, diamond hard and petal tender. Peace to wild heart waves, bringing, birthing love on the low couch of the self. Pour down compassion. All day, all night, pour down, pour down compassion, pour down. Pour down like rain on this compassionless, lost world. Pour down, pour down, pour down. <laughs>